name is Laura Johnston Cole. I'm a resident of North County here in San Diego. I'm going to tell you some of the adventures that I've faced in my life and some of the really difficult things I've survived. And I hope it'll motivate you to survive whatever it is that faces you on a day-to-day basis. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s and 60s. In 1960, I entered into high school, and about that time, the United States went through a really critical period where five really wonderful people were assassinated in that decade. They were shot down. Um, Part of what I did in high school was try to integrate our community and integrate our public schools and integrate our amusement parks. And when I saw our leaders shot down like that, I was really devastated. And I really made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to sit back and just watch it happen. And so I threw myself with much energy into a number of different endeavors. Um, The five leaders I'm talking about, of course, were John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, um, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, and Malcolm X. And there were many others during that time who lost their lives as they tried to pursue justice in our country. But those were the five who were really significant in my life. I left um, Rockville, Maryland, where I was growing up, and went to college in Connecticut and became very active in the anti-war movement. We were in the—that was the peak of our effort in Vietnam, in the War of Vietnam, and I really was opposed to that. And so I was the president of the Student League for Human Rights in college, and I protested the war and even went and helped exercise the Pentagon at what point. And another time, I went down to New York City to demonstrate against the war, and my friend and her dog and I were walking down the street, and we were tear-gassed. All of those things really made me a political being. I had always been an atheist, and so I wasn't interested in, you know, looking to God or praying and expecting an answer to come. I knew I had to work for it. And so I just kind of set my mind to work on making the world better. I did struggle along the way. It wasn't a direct path. I meandered along. I um, joined a Black Panther party, and they had meetings in my house, and many times would come to into my house with violin cases with guns in them. And uh, I tried that for a while, and then when someone was shot in my apartment, I felt that that was probably the wrong way to go. So from there, I did go to Woodstock, and I enjoyed that. But it really wasn't ever my uh, interest in being a hippie or getting into drugs so that I got my mind off what had to be done in the world. I did put it on the back burner for a while and did uh, make a number of really lousy choices along the way, but I did feel like my soul or my inner person was not going to let that go on for too long. In uh, March of 1970, my sister had moved from Washington, D.C. out to California. She persuaded me to come to San Francisco. She said I had made enough lousy decisions and I needed to get my butt out to San Francisco. And, of course, she lived on the Haight-Ashbury, so there were all kinds of opportunities there. And as soon as I got there on a Wednesday, the next Sunday she took me up and I met Jim Jones for the first time. When I met him, um, I was a little bit scared off his 
congregation was everything I was looking for, all ages, all colors, you know, every socioeconomic um, level and everything, but they seemed just a little bit too righteous for me. And I was uh, in one of my dips in my commitment at that time, and I wasn't sure I wanted to make that commitment. So I continued going back for several weeks, but then uh, I was pretty unsure of what my next step would be. And um, it turned out I went one day and whatever he said was so impactful that I joined. And so I joined People's Temple in 1970 and I moved up into Redwood Valley, which was about two hours north of San Francisco. And I lived in Redwood Valley for the next seven years. I worked at the welfare department there as a case aide, and I was a bus driver. I was head of security in Redwood Valley. I was a secretary. I was a counselor. And after about two years, I was put on the planning commission, which was the commission that actually um, did a lot of the work around the temple. There were many hard workers in the temple, and the planning commission was just one uh, one small um nod to those who are working hard, but there are many hard workers. So I participated in the temple very, with every uh, part of my being, every erg of energy went into it day and night. And then um, as the People's Temple started moving south into San Francisco, Jim Jones moved south into San Francisco and I stayed in Redwood Valley. But our, our youth in San Francisco were getting more and more involved with drugs because so many drugs were sold on street corners, and we really were in the business of taking care of our children. So after one student did overdose on drugs, we decided that we should look elsewhere for a place, for a safe haven for the children, and come up with a utopian community where there were no drugs, and there was no racism, and people didn't go hungry, and people were not incarcerated when they didn't have good lawyers. So we worked really hard, and Jim Jones had visited Guyana in the 60s, and he found a place that he thought met all that criteria. And he arranged for us to go down on a trip. All the members of the planning commission went down to Guyana in 1975. So 90 of us flew down there. And as soon as I saw Guyana, I was already in love with it. It was tropical. It was about 45% black, 45% East Indian, about 5% Chinese and 5% white. So it's a total mix of really wonderful ethnic backgrounds, and it was English-speaking, and it was in the tropics, and, you know, there were mangoes growing on trees and pineapple on the bushes. I mean, it was everything I could have wanted, and there was a socialist government there that was welcoming Jim with open arms. So eventually we made arrangements to send a group of people down there and start developing a community in, in the middle of the rainforest in the Northwest District. It was about 24 hours by boat from Georgetown. So I lived um, in March of 1977, Jim asked me if I would go down to Guyana and live in Georgetown and fill the boat every week with all the supplies they needed to keep building Jonestown. Because of him. 
For about a year, I stayed in Georgetown, and I, my job was to make contacts with the community and get donations and buy supplies and pick up people at the airport and get people into, you know, get glasses or whatever medical appointments they had. I just had a range of different things um, that I was doing. After about a year, I went out to Jonestown, and I lived there the next nine months, and uh, loved it there also. I was the uh, head of a, an agricultural crew, so we'd get up first thing in the morning and go pick greens out in the, you know, in the windrows in the rainforest. And I was really delighted being there too. Um, we never had a day off, no matter where we were, until Marshland came down in the summer of 1978. We were working nonstop, and so part of I, th- I think part of what happened later was because. People were so exhausted. They didn't have the resilience to fight or even the energy to notice what was going on with Jim Jones. And we kind of lost track of how far he was getting off. We had fallen in love with the community, and we were very interested in seeing it thrive, and we really took our eyes off Jim Jones. And he was deteriorating really rapidly, but he was surrounded by people who would never let us see him at his worst. So if he had a day that he was really incoherent because of his drug use or his exhaustion or his medical situation, we never saw him that day. We would see him when he was able to take some uppers and get get it back together to present um, himself as somebody who was really organized and determined to make this work. So over the last four or five months in Jonestown, the community really loved that it was thriving, but Jim Jones was really going downhill with his mental and physical uh, capabilities really diminished. And at that same time with that going on in Jonestown, in San Francisco and in California, more and more people were questioning who he was and how did he gain his power and really researching what kinds of things were going on in people's temple. And a group called the Concerned Relatives started contacting um, elected officials. Some of the people who left People's Temple started contacting other officials and friends that they had in powerful places. And magazines started trying to research Jim to do exposés on him. So at that point, in about September of 1978, Jim was getting attacked back in San Francisco, so he sped up getting everybody to Jonestown. So from having 50 people there in March of 1977, he had 1,100 people there by the end of October 1978. And we had moved so quickly that there were not enough houses for people to be comfortable, and everything was sped up. So when people knew it came, it was very primitive, and some people were not prepared for that. But at that same time, people were finding that there were some issues that had to be dealt with. And one of the people who had been contacted was Congressman Leo Ryan, who is the San Mateo congressman. And many of the people who were in People's Temple lived in San Mateo or had come from there. And he had some other contacts in the temple. And after enough people had gone to him saying that they thought people were being held in Jonestown without permission to leave— when he thought people were held against their will, he decided to make a trip into Guyana. So Jim was seeing that you know his community was thriving, but his health was deteriorating, and that in a way the allegiance that he had 
you know, created around him in San Francisco was really dying off as people became more in love with the community and were not looking to him for leadership and for as a role model or spiritual guidance or anything. Really, people had um, put their heart and souls into making the community work. And so for somebody who was so ego-driven as Jim Jones was, that was another thing that he really had a problem with. You know, he didn't want people to forget that he was the one who took them there. He was getting mentally ill, more and more mentally ill, and more addicted to his uppers and downers. And he was being attacked in San Francisco, and there were some custody issues in Guyana. So all these things were going on. So at the end of October, he asked me if I would go back into Georgetown so he could relieve people to, from Georgetown to come back to Jonestown and see their loved ones. So I moved into Georgetown at the end of October of 1978, and really that saved my life. If, I, if he hadn't just asked me to go in, you know, I would have been in Jonestown with everybody else. No one survived from Jonestown. Um, Eleven people did go on a picnic that morning before anything happened. Three men were sent out with money that, you know, money from People's Temple to go into town and distribute it. And two other people, uh, actually four other people were able to leave. Uh, Two young men ran into the woods and another man fell into a ditch and one woman got under her bed. But other than that, that day, 914 people died in Jonestown and the area at the airstrip. Um, I was in Georgetown, and as people in Jonestown were dying, Jim sent a message out to all his other churches saying, okay, people are dying in Jonestown. It's time for everyone to kill themselves. It's revolutionary suicide. And the woman who took the message in Georgetown tried to persuade Jim's sons, Stephen and Jimmy, and some of the others who happened to be in Georgetown she tried to persuade them to go ahead and kill themselves. And Stephen Jones in particular said, absolutely not, we're stopping it right in here. So even though he was 19 years old, he said, you know, we are not doing it. We're stopping right now. So he not only stopped it at the house, but he called San Francisco and L.A. and Redwood Valley and stopped it there. The only people who died in Georgetown were the woman who took her took the message, and she was one of Jim's you know, closest Um, associates, she killed her three children and herself. And they were the four people who died in Georgetown. So other than that, everyone else died in Port Kaituma and Jonestown. We survivors, you know, um, had a very rough time um, surviving it ourselves. And so when we came back, we were all brought back, and we were taken before the grand jury in San Francisco to find out who knew what and who was responsible. But really, all of us who were out of the community hadn't been there the last few days when Jim was totally insane with Ryan's visit and different things. So uh, we were all—nobody faced charges back here, but one person who had been at the airstrip and had shot a few people, he did serve time in both Guyana and here— and one other person served time. So uh, those were the two people who were held accountable really for everything because everyone else was dead. For about 20 years after I came back, I had to get my life together and I couldn't really even acknowledge that I had been in the temple and I certainly couldn't come to terms with the trauma. So for when I first came back, I tried for a year to keep it together 
And then I moved into another residential treatment program, a drug treatment program called Synanon. And really, they took excellent care of me for 10 years and helped me get my life back together. So after that um, broke down or fell apart or was closed by the IRS, really a lot of each of those things, in 1990, I decided it was time to get back to work and figure out what I was going to do with my life. I was married and my son was born, so I went back to school and I got my um, bachelor's degree in psychology and philosophy. I went and got my teaching credential on bilingual English, Spanish, and so I worked for the next eight years trying to set up a very stable life. And 20 years after the events on November 18th, 1978, I went to the first reunion. It took me that long to go back because I wasn't sure what I would face. But I knew I had to, um, I had to figure out what went wrong. I had to figure out how I could have missed it so completely that I would be surprised by what happened. You know, I had to figure it out. And when I went back to the 20th anniversary, what I found is that of the 85 or so people who survived, we had every possible take. You know, some people said it was CIA. Some said Jim was the finest person who ever lived. Some people said, you know, it's all, you know, this or that. I, mean, I don't know. It was every point of view. And some people said, you know, I can't believe I lost my entire family there. And what we realized, though, is that even whatever differences we had, we survivors had somehow lived through this horror, and we had more in common than we had um, you know, more than any differences we had. And so we just kind of agreed to um, a mutual respect that lives through all of us. We have many different points of view. In fact, if you get us in a room together, whatever the argue, whatever the topic is, we all argue. We never did we never agree even about the weather. You know, we're just so different. So, We've gone from being way too passive in the temple to absolutely, you know, uh, speaking our minds on every possible conceivable subject. But anyway, at that 20th anniversary, I figured out, okay, for me to find out what happened, I had to reconnect with the survivors. So I became part of the Jonestown Institute Speakers Bureau. I was interviewed for many, many documentaries and on Anderson Cooper and Melissa Block on NPR and Fox News. I mean, many, over the years I've been interviewed, I don't know, maybe a hundred times. And through it all, you know, it's helped me have my point of view evolve into who I am today and it continues to evolve. So once I started getting involved, my life just was so much more enriched. So now you know, I did that. I'm a Quaker. I teach sixth grade. I am very active in a number of different things, including Occupy Escondido and, you know, Doctors Without Borders. I, what I've done is um, solidly gotten behind my activism so that I know who I am and what I need to do. 
it used to be easy in the temple because everything I did seemed like it was to make the world better. And now if I want to make the world better for homeless people, I have to help homeless people. And if I want to make the world better for children, I have to teach children. And if I want to make the world better for whoever, I have to get involved in all those aspects. So in a way, now I'm more of a jigsaw puzzle. Then it was so easy. You know, I just go to a meeting and do everything that I had to do in meeting. And it felt like I was touching all those bases. And now I have to be a conglomerate of all the different things. But uh, about two years ago, I published my book, Jonestown Survivor and Insider's Look, and it fills in a lot of the holes, a lot of the things, even in my, you know, kind of cursory review, it fills in a lot of the holes and also how I actually survived. When I came back from Guyana in late November of 1978, I really fully believe that it was a spontaneous event in Jonestown. I thought there was no way that anybody could have known about it, no way anybody could have planned it, that somehow having Congressman Ryan and the entourage of reporters and everybody there um, in Jonestown, and then soon after that, people started passing them notes that they wanted to leave, and they had to leave with the, with Congressman Ryan. They didn't trust Jim Jones to let them out. I really, I mean, in a way, I based my survival and my ability to move on. I based everything on it being a spontaneous act, that somehow things got so off kilter that Jim felt he had no choice but to have everybody take the poison. And so really for probably 20 years, I really believed that it was spontaneous And that got me through a lot of tough times because I couldn't believe that I'd seen it progress in Jonestown. And so uh, one of the very first things when I started talking to the other survivors at the 20th anniversary, uh, we found out, you know, there was a group of people, Jim's mistresses and secretaries who were around him, who had all concurred that suicide was the only way to go. And, you know, really in the last 15 years or so, I found out that Jim had ordered the poison. The poison had been in Guyana at least six months, if not a year. And they found lots of notes about the doctor who was giving the poison to pigs to see how much poison it took to kill people. So um, more and more, one of my absolute turnabouts has been that the poison was well thought out and that everything was strictly uh, organized so that when Ryan left, that the poison, there was one person who was determined, was set to do each part of bringing out the vats of poison and the flavor aid and getting the children and the syringes. Every single thing was absolutely organized to the T, and Jim had delegated it a lot because that very last day he was incoherent. So all of it had to be organized before that day. And so it was anything but spontaneous. There was nothing spontaneous about it. It was already set. I mean, everybody had their own jobs to do to take care of it. So that's one thing that changed just... uh, totally changed for me in my perspective. Another thing was, you know, Jim, whenever we saw Jim, he appeared upbeat and coherent and kind of on top of things. And I didn't realize that he was less and less in the community and that most people didn't see him. And um, 
One, the one survivor, Hyacinth Thrash, wrote a book called The Onlyest One Alive. She wrote about how in her cottage in Jonestown, she could see into Jim's cottage and that she could see people dancing and uh, doing whatever they were doing in Jim's cottage, which was really a different point of view from anything I had seen or heard. And, I mean, I've talked to the other survivors. There was so much that was going on that was just not told. It, there was a code of silence between all the secretaries and whatever went on with Jim never made it public. So there was just so much going on behind the scenes that, you know, the 900 people, 900 people who died didn't know about. And so, really, it was amazing to me. And... When I talk to survivors, one person has this bit of information and one has that bit of information, and you kind of paste it all together to see really how devastatingly well-planned everything was. At the beginning... You know, Jim and his wife Marcelin were the first white couple to adopt a black child in the state of Indiana, and he named him Jim Jones Jr. Um, he had adopted children of all different races, and he had his homegrown son, Stephen Gandhi Jones. I think that at the beginning, if Jim had surrounded himself with people who were courageous in stopping his um, egotistical side, he might not have turned out to be a madman who killed 918 people. I think that at the beginning, he did believe in total integration. He did believe in taking care of people. He did believe in acknowledging that everyone should be treated with dignity. So I think that all of those things were true. But I think that once he got powerful, once he realized that he had power over however many women or men he wanted to have sex with, no, I think once he started realizing that he had enormous power in politics in San Francisco, all of those things built him up so that he could not allow himself to fail. And so once that happened, the purity of his position, everything was political after that. You know, once once he realized what power he could actually channel, I think uh, that went over and he decided to go, you know, whatever it is, to the dark side and manipulate and just use full full manipulations. So, but I, I think that at the beginning, I think there were many parts of him that were wonderful. And, you know, we had a wonderful community in Jonestown without him. Without him being there reminding us, we had, um, we had really created a utopian society where there was no racism in Jonestown. He had his own, you know, propensity. He, you know, always had, you know, young white girls, just a couple of exceptions. I mean, he was involved with men also, but, you know, he didn't live it in his sexual appetites. But in the community, he retrained us. He retrained those of us who were brought up in the United States to have, you know, prejudices and uh, different kinds of, you know, our society is a very... Um, polarized and divided society. It's very, there's a lot of prejudice in every 
part of our our culture. So he just started breaking it down. When we were in the temple, if we rode in a car, we would always integrate the front seat. It would never be two whites in the front and two blacks in the back, or the other way around, two black in the front and two white in the back. Everything was integrated. When we went to, when we got to Jonestown, we would, everything was integrated. If you worked all day with people who maybe were woodsmen, wood workers or carpenters, and they happened to be white, when it was time to eat, you did not sit with people who are all your same color you would integrate in every setting and it was retraining because we didn't grow up that way you know we would associate with people who were kind of like we were if we if I went to college I would probably hang out with people who went to college if I you know had an interest in this and so what he did is say you know what create a new interest it's not acceptable and so you know, we got retrained. And so the result was the young people and the children in Jonestown did not did not live the way we lived back in the United States, treating each other based on color. And so that's one of the things that, you know, I loved about People's Temple and that I'm still searching for. I haven't found that again. You know, I haven't found that kind of absolute being beyond seeing a person's color. I haven't seen that. And, you know, one other thing that I think is interesting, now if a person goes to join a group, whether it's, you know, you consider it a cult or a group or whatever, um, now you can say, you know, don't forget Jonestown. But when we were Jonestown, there was no reference point. There was nothing to say, oh, yeah, don't forget. I mean, if you said, like, don't forget Masala or don't forget Nothing had happened before then that would prepare people. So there was no, like now you can say, don't forget Heaven's Gate, don't forget, you know, Jim Jones, don't forget that. But at the time, you know, there was no point of reference that could have prepared us for what was going to happen. And that was a really big part of us not seeing it. Because, you know, we were in denial. Well, you know, it never happened before. It couldn't happen. Nah, not Jim Jones. Never. It would never happen. So, you know, we talk ourselves out of it. Like if we had a thought, we'd say, you know what, that's just crazy. That couldn't happen because it had never happened. <laughs> so we'd talk ourselves out of it. So even when we observed. I have to separate what happened at the end and what happened uh, seven years before. And in a way, it's reinforced by my deep friendships with all the other survivors. We have a friendship that, you know, regardless of color or anything else, we have such a deep friendship that would not have been possible if People's Temple hadn't been wonderful in many aspects. In a way, the proof that People's Temple was an outstanding, really an outstanding kind of vegetable soup that all these different people with different skills and different tastes and different personalities, we could all be together. And then even now, 34 years later, and it's 34 years this coming November, even after 34 years, if I got a call from anybody who's a survivor, I would do whatever it takes to help the person. So, you know, that's the part that I remember. And the day that that happened, you know, that, you know, we somehow let Jim get away with that and didn't stop it, you know, I can't just think about everything that happened before and everything since and, you know, think that that one day says it all, that one day ruined it all. 
but there was certainly more before, and there's been more since for those who survived. 